Listening to the future of work by Singapore Institute of Management. I'm Graham Brown, your host, and in this show, we feature the leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, opportunities, and challenges that are shaping the future of work. This episode is part of the Dash Plus series that examines the four critical influences of Dash Plus framework, design thinking, agile and transformational thinking, systems thinking and hyper-performance strategies, all to help you and your organization emerge stronger. Hey folks, we're live. Welcome to the live show, the webinar. As you all come into the room and find your seats, let's talk through what's going on. Welcome, welcome back. If this is your second, third, fourth, session with us, then welcome back. Thank you very much for joining us today. I know you're all busy people, but thank you for joining us for the next 45 minutes. We're going to be talking about solving complex problems with systems thinking. I've got some great panelists for you today. You are not going to be disappointed. This is the ongoing continuation of the Dash Plus series. My name is Graham Brown. I'm looking forward to taking you on a journey today. If this is your first time with us today, and if you're back, say hello. Let me guide you. If you've never done a Zoom webinar before, where have you been for the last three months? Down at the bottom of the screen, there is a chat icon. Click the icon, say hello. If you have been with us before, if you joined us for one of our previous sessions, let us know. We want to know also where you are from in the world, because this isn't just about Singapore. We're broadcasting live from Singapore, but we know a lot of you join from different countries around the world. Somebody already joining from the Philippines. Hello to the Philippines. Let us know where you are. First time here and log in from Brussels. Well, good morning to you, Brussels. I'm not sure what time it is out there, but welcome. Thank you for joining us. This is going to be a very interesting session. We are going to do something which we, ha we haven't done before. We're going to look at some case studies and then we're going to have a live Kanban, a walk through a challenge for the panelists today. And if you stick around to the end of the webinar, I'm going to show you how you can get the PDF from today's session. So all the notes, so you don't have to be scribbling away. You can enjoy the webinar as we move through the world of systems thinking coming up. Well, if you miss any of this, or if you want to go back to any of the previous sessions that we did, you can go and get everything here. All you need to do is take your phone and just take a photo. Put it on the photo app on your phone, the camera, and take a photo of this QR code. We've all done this now. We're used to checking in. So check in with us, guys. Take your camera, take a photo of that QR code. What that will do is take you to Spotify and once you're on Spotify, subscribe to the Future of Work podcast. And the Future of Work podcast will give you access to all the previous sessions, which you may or may not have missed. But if you were a part of it, then you can go and review all the notes from the previous podcast. And today as well, when we publish this episode as a podcast, the audio version, you can go and grab that, listen to it in your own time and review. 
The QR code is going to stay at the bottom of the screen throughout. So if you miss it now, still works. Coming up, we have an esteemed panel for you to talk about systems thinking. Hello to everybody. If you're in the chat room, thank you very much for saying hello. A lot of people are writing their comments in here. Welcome back for the fourth series, the fourth one. Andy Yip, thank you for joining us. And anybody else for the first time, we'll walk you through how this works. So I'm joined by a panel today of different backgrounds. Dr. Kevin, a familiar voice on this series. I'm going to introduce him and get an update on systems thinking very shortly. Anthony Russell, first time, he heads up the ecosystem partnerships for APAC, Workplace by Facebook, and Sachin Tonk, VP of Data Analytics at Standard Chartered Bank. Guys, I'll introduce you very shortly and ask you to comment on some of the issues that are coming up. But before we do, why are we talking about systems thinking? So cue this up. Systems thinking is hot right now. There's a lot going on in the world, which is very complicated. And there are a number of crises that we've all lived through. We've had climate change. We've had ecosystem disasters, the bushfires in Australia. Systems thinking is becoming a thing, even at the political level. They're talking about systems thinking at the governmental level and trying to introduce systems thinking and see how they can create better decisions and better policy. And lastly, as we've all lived through the last three months, COVID-19 means systems thinking is no longer optional. So to solve these very complex problems, both in society and government, and importantly for us in business, we need systems thinking. So what is going on? Dr. Kevin, welcome back to the fourth in the Dash Plus series. I hope you're well and ready to jump straight into the problem. What is going on? Help us understand. Hi, good afternoon, Graham. I think I think when we when we think about systems thinking, the, the point here really is to, to recognize that when we solve problems, uh, business problems or any kind of problems, we have to think about the system in which we're embedded. Whether you're an individual, whether you're a company, you really got to think about how your actions will affect the entire system eventually and how the actions that happen inside the system is going to affect you uh, in, in particular when it comes to business. Yeah. So, so, you know, don't, don't just focus internally, always think about what's happening out there in very, in very simple terms. What I like to focus on is ecosystem collaboration uh, or competition for the matter, collaboration and code. I use a simple example. Can I, can I start with an example, Graham, at this point? You want to do noodles already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You want to jump something. around or you want to hold it? Because I want to ask I'll, the I'll audience hold. first. All right. We'll so, do so it like Kevin likes his food examples. His analytics. Just hold it. Save it. We'll do it after the poll because I've already teed. I know that one is a good one as well. So stick around for the next few minutes. Kevin's going to introduce the case study from the example of noodles. But before we get there, easier said than done, ecosystems. We've got Sachin Tonk, who's going to help us understand from the world of fintech and banking, and Anthony Russell, ecosystems in his job title as well. But before we get to introduce the guest, let's go to the poll, guys. We've got 253 people in this webinar today. Let's flash up the poll. I want to ask you about what your challenges are. Now, what are the challenges faced? We all talk about ecosystems and building partnerships. Easier said than done, surely. So 
if you're joining us now, for the 250 people out there, what are the biggest challenges you are facing which hinders ecosystem collaboration for your organization? So we all need to build ecosystem partnerships. But what are the real-world problems that you face? And I'd like to ask the panel, just as the attendees are voting for the biggest problems, what do you think would be the biggest problem here? Anthony, I know I haven't introduced you, but I'm going to introduce you formally in a minute. But dive in here because you've got ecosystem in your job title. You should know this very well. Looking at how people are voting now, would you like to comment on this? Yeah, look, for me personally, Graham, building trust, um, not just with the partners, but also internal to your team. You know, being able to work out how to run on a field where your team aren't the only players on your side uh, and ensuring that you're building trust. So on both ways, without a, me would be, without a doubt, would be the biggest, biggest focus for me personally. Trust, is that something you can train or does that come with the personality? I don't think you can train it. I think it comes from a set of behaviours. Um, behaviours allow us to form trust uh, and a set of behaviours in the right direction, obviously, and, and actions allow us to show that we've got trust that's building in some way, shape or form, I'd say. Great. Well, I'm going to ask you about some real world examples as well, practical advice as well, and case studies about that, how it actually happens shortly. Um, Sachin, over to you. Before we do a formal introduction, having a look at the voting here, we've had 170 plus people vote. Comments on the votes here, people are saying like influencing other players, building trust, some of the key challenges here. Interestingly, sharing data, not such a big challenge here. What are your thoughts here, looking at the data coming in? Yeah, I think I'll go with um, Anthony, building trust and with partners is, is obvious choice. But um, coming from the banking background, we do have a lot of challenges in sharing data, right? So for us, uh, data is very critical. And at the same time, we still have a lot of issues to deal with in, in order to share the data. So with the banking mindset, sharing data is also a very critical thing. Exactly. And I guess sharing data and building trust is almost one of the same as well for you, right? So that you can't separate them. Dr. Kevin, have a look at the answers here. Nearly 200 people have voted. Number one challenge, influencing other players. Your thoughts? Well, as in what I, I think uh, people are going to do, I, I'm going to go a little bit different. I, I like building trust without partners being a, the, the tough one, but I think people might choose influencing others in the ecosystem. Did you see the data before whilst it was voting? Oh. No, you didn't. Okay. Oh. I wasn't aware that you couldn't actually see the vote happening. So there you go. Oh. Number one challenge, 200 people voted. Number one challenge facing people hindering them from collaboration in the organization or ecosystem collaboration. Number one was influencing other players. Interesting. I guess, that, I mean, they're all kind of flavors of each other here, right? Influencing other players, building trust, sharing data. We're going to dive into that. And we're going to come back to that data very shortly. And yeah, maybe we can go straight into the, the case study. Let's do that. Let's bring up the case study, Kevin. So ecosystem collaboration, systems thinking, it sounds very complicated. But maybe if we can simplify things a little bit here. Oh, thank you. That's a nice. <laughs> okay, so I, I don't know if everyone recognizes the the, the gentleman in there. He's one of uh, one of the most interesting innovators out there. He's uh, Ando Momofuku, the the inventor of instant noodles. So the the story that I like to share about ecosystem collaboration came out of something I learned about uh, instant noodles. All of you are probably familiar with instant noodles, but when instant noodles became really really popular in in Japan. Uh, there started to be all sorts of copycats. Uh, lots of other companies entered the market. 
made different their own variations of instant noodles. Interestingly, the one of the government authorities, uh, health authorities of Japan, came to Andomofuku and say, "Look, we have a problem. All these other alternatives are not particularly healthy. You need to do something about the the industry." And Legend has it, uh, legend because I wasn't there, was that he invited, under Mofuku, under Nissan, invited all his competition into a conference. And apparently he said to all of them, if you will make a commitment to making the highest quality instant noodles, I will give you my secret recipe for free. All right, so I like to say, anyone ever heard of open innovation, open source code? This, this is open source there. You know, Nissan did it way before Linux. And, and why, why would you do that? And the official story goes that Ando did it because his original motivation for founding Nissan is to feed the whole of Japan. And his realization is if he can get his competitors to work with him and produce the same quality noodles, he will achieve that goal faster at scale. So scale was important. Getting to his goals was important. Now, I think personally, there's, a, there's something else really interesting happening. I think he has a really, really shrewd, clever businessman. I think by giving away his secret recipe for free, what he's ensured is that everybody uses the same recipe as Nissan. So Nissan becomes the what we call dominant design or the reference for the industry. It sets the standard, right? Why would you give your competition your your secret recipe, your secret sauce? I mean, that's just just counter strategy one on one. But I think it's about positioning himself it's about being the reference about being a dominant side so i think it's really really cool uh, thinking behind why you should collaborate the ecosystem let's put it into context as well this was not last year was it this was many years ago many decades ago before people even thought about systems thinking i think it was 1964 or something like that yeah okay what a great opener noodles something very basic but that approach, that mindset at an early stage to achieve a bigger societal level win. Anthony, I want to introduce you, obviously new to the webinar. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Graham, it's fantastic to be back. This is my second time with you, but the first time on this webinar series. That's right. It's good. We like to jam ideas. I'm looking forward to that. I know you like to talk around and do the case studies and the anecdotes. You've had a long history in building marketplaces, building ecosystems. Just before we talk about that, somebody's actually asked in the chat, and I thought maybe we could actually start there. Eddie Law asked to the panelists, and by the way, if you have questions, feel free to put them in the chat as we go along. What is ecosystem collaboration? <laughs> Seems quite basic, but maybe you can talk about that and maybe talk about like what it is in the kind of experience that you have and how you understand it and what kind of job really that is. Sure, sure. Look, it's, it's a good one. And, and I should hopefully be able to have some view on it as it's uh, part of my job title, it seems. I've, I've been lucky enough for those that are on the on the line now, I've been lucky enough to be based in Singapore for about nine or so years. Uh, I moved up here a while ago to, to start the Amazon web services business in Asia. And it was the first time I had that word in my title. Uh, and the first time actually I hadn't had a technical role. This is now the second time. It's nine years later. I'm running the uh, ecosystem partnership business at Facebook under our enterprise side um, called Workplace. And effectively, in my opinion, what ecosystem partnerships is, is helping our business scale far faster 
into such diverse markets such as the countries that we have around Asia by working with the market leaders in those markets. They are a combination of consulting companies, technology companies that will allow us to extend our business without becoming, to be frank, the next Oracle or SAP or IBM. Uh, some of those companies I've worked at before myself. We don't want to grow a company of 500 sales and delivery staff internally. We want to do that from the best in the market with the local knowledge and the localization and cultural respect that's needed. So for us, that ecosystem focus is really how do we scale our business through others to ensure, though, that we're both driving customer success at the same stage as building our businesses as well. Why did you choose to do it that way as opposed to, like you said, the alternative is having 500 enterprise sales guys out in the field? I think that you, it is very hard to build trust in the market space, as I mentioned before. And if, if I think about the, the poll that was up before, I think the, the critical component at the start is trust. Trust allows you to then influence others. So I think that there was, as you said, a very key link between the two. And why we started this way is because, well, there's many reasons. The, the, the first one is that you drive local market delivery through people who already have formed trust in those markets. So in my business right now, we work heavily with a lot of people in internal comms and HR people side of the business. And we want to work with those people who have who already have trust in their local markets, be in the Philippines, in Australia, in Japan, in India, for example. We want we want people who are subject matter experts who can take the tools that we're delivering and see how those tools are utilized within their organizational change program. So, you know, we know where we fit. We are a tool builder. We build collaboration platforms within the wider Facebook. How do we make people more open and connected? And in doing so, how can we allow those experts in markets to drive their markets utilizing the tools that we bring to the market? So I imagine the number of the people listening and joining us today come from non-tech backgrounds. So people maybe from banks, for example, could be from government. They're not Facebook. They're not one of those exciting unicorns, decacorns, et cetera, from the startup ecosystem. They may be wondering what exactly somebody who heads up ecosystem partnerships does. What kind of a role is it? Is it a marketing type role or is it, I mean, you know, where does it sort of fit in the traditional functions or does it defy all of that and require a multidisciplinary approach? I think the answer to that question is determinant based off the age of the company that you're in. In both of the last two examples that I gave, the, the Amazon Web Services and the, and the Facebook one, we've effectively started startups within organizations. So for that one reason, the role is completely multidisciplinary in regards to we're playing across the field. You're, you're an educator, you're a relationship builder, you're a sourcer, you're also a seller, you're a technical relational um, consultant as well as a support member. So it's more, I think, around the, the nature of the business that we're in. If I think back to a more traditional technology business, you would potentially have one fixed position, which is you're doing business development to help grow a channel business uh, or potentially sell within a channel business. But where we are, which is one thing that I find fascinating about when you're building a startup, either a, a true startup, well, an external startup or a startup within a large company is you get to play across the field. And I know for a lot of people, there's a lot of interest in that. You know, you aren't just defined by one role, but you are defined by, by a couple of key things. The first one is 
unless it scales, we shouldn't be doing it. From a technology point of view, uh, something I, I learned back in the day at Amazon was unless you can prove that it scales, you shouldn't be doing it or you need a very good reason to to do it for a period of time and you should know how long you're going to be doing it for. And that is that is extremely important in regards to, to what we're building now. It needs to scale. We need to ensure that we have local subject matter knowledge that we can be correct more times than be incorrect. And for that one reason, working with local organisations and potentially at times competitors, as we were saying earlier, and we'll talk about that later on, it is really important. We have a set of competitors in our market space that we work very closely with. There might be components of what we do that compete, but working as one whole means that we're better together and we're able to go to market quicker with more assurance and give the customers more certainty. So, so for, for me, that, that's, that's what's very important in that space. That issue about competition is going to be really important. That will come back about how do you partner with competition. So there are practical approaches to that and mindset approaches we'll address as well. Can we bring up AWS as an example so people can understand? There are, there are many visualizations of the AWS ecosystem out there. And I think in many ways, AWS has written the playbook for ecosystem building what can we learn? So Amazon Web Services, for those that don't know, generates what, 67, 66% of Amazon profits. And yet a lot of people don't even know who these guys are. You know, these are the guys that are not selling books and CDs. These are the guys who are running, you know, the back of the internet. So maybe you can do a quick intro, a one-on-one on AWS, because, you know, a lot of people out there are not from the world of tech. And then what has been so successful about how they built that ecosystem and what can we learn from it? So I didn't know that that's actually the current number in regards to AWS's contrib- contribution. Um, when I joined, there were four or five people in Asia uh, and we literally were moving out of a serviced office at the time. AWS effectively is a highly scalable compute platform for enterprises and businesses to actually stand up and run their businesses on. It started with the ability to effectively think of renting servers by the hour and that grew into storage. Well, it started with storage, it then grew into servers, it then grew into databases, it then grew into more specific areas such as artificial intelligence today. But it also allowed companies to scale rapidly. So the likes of Netflix you know, if they have 10 users, they're using five servers. If, they're using, if they've got 100 users, they're using 10 servers and they scale out in a very elastic way. Elastic's a very big term in that area. One thing that was interesting in regards to the AWS business is we effectively went in in the first year with the sales deck that, have, that said, why is a bookseller coming to talk to you about IT? Like there literally was a slide in the sales deck around that because we had to convince an audience of why is a, literally why is an e-commerce bookseller believing that they have any competence and credibility in this space. And that the credibility came from, A, the fantastic and phenomenal service that from day one, Werner Vogels, uh, Andy Jassy and the team built. But in addition to that was the, the relationships that we built in market and the way that we went to market, not with the biggest guys in town, guys and girls in town that could deliver on our behalf and with us, but actually with a set of smaller, nimble companies that would take the risk, move quickly and introduce us into that market space, allow us to build credibility and then be able to expand from there. If we take AWS as that playbook, if I turn this back to Dr. Kevin now and going back to noodles as well, what's the, where are the similarities there when we look at Nissin Amazon Web Services, what is the approach? What were these companies doing differently fundamentally 
And then what can we learn from it then when we look at incumbents and competition? Uh, there's, several, there's several things going on. One is the collective effort. And, and it's, a, it's kind of a, it's, you're getting a synergy from a divide and conquer approach, right? You're, you're saying that AWS and, and Anthony, please uh, correct me, right? Is saying that there are a lot of smart companies out there have a lot of great technology. They, they solve the same, the same problem from different perspectives. Let's work together to, to attack this. And, and, and I think Anthony once told me this, that instead of competing with your, your competition outright and, and putting each other out of business, let's say work together. Let's get to the goal quicker. I bring something to the table. You bring something to the table. Together, we can scale faster. We can solve the problem better. And it, you, you create a win-win situation as opposed to a, a win-lose situation, right? How does that work in practice? You know, saying like, we got to go to our competition. Um, what's the actual pitch there, Anthony? How how did that actually work? How would you do that? You go to your competitors who, for years and years, have been eating your lunch. How, how does that work? From an Amazon Web Services point of view, the, the way we went to we approached that was we didn't go with the tier one competitors in the market. We went with the smaller, hungrier guys who saw the the strategic alignment that came in. One of the greatest examples I'd give there, for those that aren't technical, this might, I'll try and keep this uh, relatively level-minded in regards to the, the statement, but Amazon brought out a storage service that initially didn't have any encryption that was built in. So the ability to, you know, to, to hide and to secure the data that was in there, it was secure, but it, it wasn't encrypted. And, and we went to market with a set of encryption providers, security providers who wanted to work with us who would encrypt that data. Now, we, we told them from day one, they had to keep on innovating because we were going to be very quickly in that space. The, the fact that we didn't have encryption as a base feature within the solution from day one was simply a matter of us trying to, de to deliver quickly, deploy quickly and have services to market. We were going to be moving into that space, but we wanted to work with companies who could move quickly, could move at our speed and could be pushed forward. So effectively that competition became a key partner. And I think us working together with them allowed us to both strengthen and grow our business. Now in the future, all of the incumbents, the large technology providers that have been disrupted in the last 10 years moved. And you know, lo and behold, you see the partnerships that are in place now. I always laugh when I see another name that's aligned itself with Amazon or with Google or with Microsoft, because I can tell you nine years ago, they were laughing us out of the room. I was in several of those rooms where you laughed out of. You work with the smaller, hungrier guys and girls who, who understand that they want to run quickly, deliver alongside you, and you have a very healthy and open relationship. It doesn't happen all the time, but I think it happens eight out of 10 times. You, you, you can form a very collaborative environment with companies who potentially might be seen traditionally as being competitors in certain areas. Very interesting. Sachin, let's bring this into the world of finance and banking. Traditionally, very competitive. And it feels strange, doesn't it, that you would be sitting in the same room talking about collaboration with somebody who for years and years you've been competing against. Let's talk about the, that in the world of, especially here in Singapore as well, because we have a very healthy competitive environment in fintech, the banking industry, a lot of neo banks now, a lot of fintech players coming into this space. To Anthony's point about collaborating with competition. Can you address that first? And then secondly, maybe we can talk a bit about data as well, because this is maybe more of the practical challenge that, okay, all very well, but who owns the data and what happens with that? So first about actually collaboration with competition. Does it as happen as much as we think it does? From the uh, bank and financial institute perspective, I don't think so. The collaboration is happening that much the way 
the technology companies like Facebook and Amazon are able to do it. I personally feel that the shift is happening, but still there is a lot of rigidness around it. And there is a lot of, lot of fear factor of collaborating, right? And there has been several use cases where collaboration between the banks is, is a real win-win situation, but still it is not happening to that scale, which ideally it should happen, right? For example, sharing credit information, right? The credit ratings of, of the clients and your your customers so, so that, you know, the customers who are not very safe to give loans or to, to give products, right? If you you share that information across the bank, right? Then, then at the same time, when it comes to financial crime, your anti-money laundering, your organizations which are being blacklisted and, you know, all those kind of hidden accounts where the money is sneaking through, that, that kind of collaboration across banks will will allow, you know, better control over all these things. So I, I still see there is um, a lot of things can happen in financial institutes from collaboration perspective, but still not very open uh, uh, right now. Coming to the data point, right, we do have a lot of data and we do have a lot of sensitive data and we, the industry is heavily regulated by by regulators like GDPR is there, PDPA is there, a lot of different and then we have global regulations, we have local regulations, uh, Standard Chartered being a global bank, right, it's 150 plus countries, yeah, so a lot of regulations are there, so it becomes very challenging, tricky and cumbersome as well to share the data because um, we don't want to uh, take any kind of chances to share any data by and which which slips on the cracks and you know uh, it goes but at the same time we also would like to collaborate with fintech and startup companies to to really have uh, use cases uh, a, a good solution to the problems and right now banks have also understand understood this this thing very clearly that you know agile speed to market quick turnaround time and especially in the age of disruption they cannot go with the the conventional life cycle of waterfall where you invest quite a significant type of understanding the problem do it so so do small bring value on the table then scale that that's that's the idea and if you have to fail uh, you should fail immediately with the with the usage of agile so quickly fail quickly learn quickly adapt so so again sharing of data is is, is a challenge but we are also looking into some areas like how can we do different ways of masking encryption and hide the sensitive data. But at the same time, the essence of data is is shared so that uh, the real solutions can be developed. Graham, if I can jump in here, I think Sachin brought up something quite interesting here uh, as I listened to him about building that trust. I think the key to this kind of collaboration is to not be, to own the entire market or, or give everyone the sense that I'm going to be the only player left in, in, in this space. I think it's about sharing some of your vulnerabilities and admitting to your collaborators, look, I'm really, really strong in component A, dimension A, uh, and, and I need B and C. And a lot, I think the traditional ways to say, oh, let's let's build that capability, that competency quickly and, and, and just own everything. And instead, why not reach out to your competitors who specialize in B and C and say, look, are we, we're going to use your stuff on B, C. We're good at A, you use A, we use B, and we grow the market. So together... We actually grow the pie. This this doesn't have to be a fixed pie. Uh, we grow the pie together. We we in in so and we still have the respective market share in terms of uh, percentages or maybe even bigger. And as a result, your outcomes or your profits may actually grow larger. There's no need to to think of this as a as a trade off. Let's talk about the million dollar question then. The the actual operational challenge of doing this. Before we get to the case study, where we will 
ask the panelists to address a specific challenge. There are a couple of questions that come up and I will field the questions. I gather some of the questions now, feed it to the panelists. But I think there's one question that's come up and I think it's maybe worth addressing now about ecosystem collaboration. And it was a question by Charles T. And I think this is really important. This is the structural question is that for traditional legacy companies, would it be better to set up a completely new outfit with new ground rules, right? Because, I mean, you talked about the cross-disciplinary part. This is the big question because then they're more open to cooperation. Or do you do it within the structure? I'd like to ask just very quickly for your answers from the panelists, your, your thoughts on this, because this must be the big challenge. It's like you could go out with the attitude of ecosystem collaboration, but the structural DNA of the organization may bring you back to the starting point. Yeah, I'd vote yes. I think Clayton Christensen with the Innovators Dilemma back in the day um, taught me very well around that one point. Um, yes, I would definitely do it outside the traditional organization if the traditional organization can't move quickly enough. Can I ask you, Anthony, is it possible within an existing structure, if the structure is not favorable to that, is it worth fighting that battle internally? I would personally say no. Look, my, my experience, obviously, my answer comes from my experience and thinking about the very fast moving technology companies and how quickly they expect people to run. I'd be saying that you're going to be putting up too many barriers to success as opposed to doing it externally to that traditional organization. It might be 100% owned by that traditional organization, but it has different KPIs, different measurements, and it's running at a different speed. Sachin, you would know very well. Yeah, I, I would definitely go with Anthony and um, uh, Dr. Kevin. I, but actually, I just want to add, right, the critical point here is speed to market in the sense, you know, if the DNA itself is not allowing that collaboration, right, and if, we, if you pick up the battle to to fix that as well, which, which which I think uh, with the real push can be done, but at the same time, you will lose a lot of time. The essence is lost, right? So I, I, I think the speed of market is, is very critical. So I, I will definitely go with um, both of them, yeah. If I were to build on uh, Anthony and uh, Sachin's point, right, the approach, and I can see some of the questions asking, how do we do this? And, and the way to do is think a bit of uh, ambidexterity. So the technical term is ambidexterity or in more layman terms, say, learn to use your left hand and learn to use your right hand. So think about very big, I, I, can't, I work in a really, really traditional, old, uh, very old industry, right? Education. Uh, and it's been around for hundreds of years. And SIM is no, is no stranger to that. Uh, and and the, the point is that the, the, part of, the, the, the thing that makes the organization so traditional and successful, uh, it's a successful thing. It becomes really, really big. The point is to think of that as your right hand. Okay, so most of us are right-handed. So, so sorry to, to, to say to the, to, to the left-handed. And you, you want to learn how to use your left hand and right hand at the same time. And what you do is you, you, you kind of spin off a, a smaller group. So if you take it as I am, the, the big, strong, well-functioning well machine is, is in Clementi, the, the global education, 11, 11 partner universities. That's just a huge ecosystem. And the smaller one at Nambi is it's, uh, it's focused on enterprise learning, uh, focused on, on customization. So it's, it's easier to have a smaller group do customization. Um, and this is where you experiment with the new stuff. Is where you produce the new things. And it's about speed to market. You keep it small, you keep it experimental. Uh, and, and leadership matters. This, this is where it this is the crux. For ambidextrous organization to succeed in this way, right? The senior leadership must support it. The senior leadership must understand what's going on in, in, in both, both components. And the senior leadership needs to understand how this two, these two components, the big one and the small one that's moving fast to market works in tandem with each other. 
Because just think about it, the, 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 the risk of the big traditional piece is that you could get disrupted. So if you're not careful, you could be disrupted. Right? You're going to get disrupted by a new technology, a small, you say, how, how, how do I get disrupted by something small? By having a smaller outfit in, in your organization, that smaller outfit operates a bit like a startup and always try to test and find out what's the latest and, and test new things. And when you figure it out, that small thing will feedback the innovation into the bigger system and the, the bigger system will, will absorb it and, and slowly change and adapt. But you see, the, the point why you want to keep is that the organization exists, uh, exists and succeeds because of certain advantages and certain uh, benefits. So let's not lose that certain strengths. So the trick here is not to, to overturn the entire organization. The trick here is to understand what you, to maintain your strengths and work on your weaknesses. So that small outfit, that small outfit that's designed to go to speed market and trying out new things, it's going to be the, the engine of those new, new ways of doing things. Great. Well, that's great advice. I would like to know as well, just before we dive into the case study, thoughts on would that small outfit have to operationally sit outside of the mothership, i.e. having a separate office? Because I've seen these challenges where they try to build those teams internally in the same office and they've had the same water cooler. You know, they end up dressing the same, all those kind of things. Is that an issue or not? Would you, if you were charged with this project, having to build this, Anthony? Best case scenario would be probably yes, to build it outside. But I, I, to be totally frank, I think that there are ways that you could succeed internally. I, I think it comes down to the, the goals and the motivators for the people that are in that team. There might be some, uh, there might be some concerns there around data access. And I, I see a question here around antitrust as well. Potentially, there might be some level of exposure of data that you wouldn't want to have access to. So IT systems, but it would be better to be externally, but I don't think that it is a necessity. That's for sure. I've definitely worked with small agile companies that are a part of a far bigger mothership, you know, uh, organizational change companies that are a part of a telecommunications company. They do sit in the same offices or they're paid for by the same organization, but at the end of the day, they run completely separate to the tune of the wider organization. You see that across Asia quite a fair bit. These days, it's not so much of an issue. Maybe 10, 20 years ago, it needed to happen, but with the way we work now, it's not so much of a challenge, is it? Guys, let's jump into the case study. There's a lot of questions coming up, so maybe we can field some of those questions around the case study as well. So unprepared, the panelists are now going to take on the challenge of a simple case study, a hypothetical case study. Let's give them the choices. You've got Durian Pay, a local best of breed payment service for Hawker stands here in Singapore and Southeast Asia. Uncle Yu, Uncle Yu is education for later stage corporates, reskilling a lot of government support, I guess, here in Singapore as well. Those are the choices. What we want to do is ask the audience, which one do would you like our esteemed panelists to take on as a challenge? Durian Pay, vote Durian Pay in the chat box. You can write Durian Pay A, or if you want to hear Uncle Yu, simply in the chat box, write out Uncle Yu. Uh, Uncle Yu is popular. Uncle Me doesn't exist, by the way. So a lot of votes for Uncle Yu. Uncle Yu is crushing it right now. There we go. I think it's going to have to be Uncle Yu. We're going to do Uncle Yu. All right. Thanks, guys. This is what's going to happen. And bring up some agile tools. I'll ask my engineer to bring up the screen. We're going to load up Airtable. 
Now, Airtable is a great agile tool if you want to practice Kanban. So you may have seen Trello as an example. It's very simple. It's a tool where you can create cards, here's an example, and you can drag them around. So it's great for planning like this. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask Dr. Kevin to lead the team. And Sachin and Anthony are your consultants in the team. Now, Uncle Yu has come to you and said, hey, look, we are a traditional educational establishment. Uh, we need to, we understand that we need to stay relevant in this day and age. And even young people are asking the question now, do I need to go to university? And older people are asking, you know, what does university mean to me now? You know, I'm, I'm maybe mid-career. So I would like Kevin to lead the team and any questions asked by the audience as well, we'll feed them as we go along. So what I'll do is I'll note take so we can write some notes here. So start with the problem, Kevin. Would you like to lead us through here? If we start with the problem, Uncle Yu, what is the problem? Maybe we can start there. And you've got Sachin and Anthony to help you out to brainstorm ideas live. And I'll just note take. So I'll try and be quiet as possible here as you guys talk through. All right, guys. So here's the problem, right? We're gonna we need to create 100,000 jobs in Singapore, and we, we just a draw from my experience from in 2020. This is 10 years ago in 2020. You know, something happened in 2020. It's a big COVID. People got displaced. Lots of jobs lost. But here's the problem. Lots of there's lots of people who are unemployed, but there's also a lot of jobs out there. Let's try to get some people jobs in I don't know the manufacturing industry. The, the economy was bad. Markets crash, you know, Sachin said, uh, you know, not just Sachin per se, but then uh, banks laid off a lot of people. We need to place people in in, uh, in manufacturing. And manufacturing needs jobs. There are lots of jobs and need people, but there's a big mismatch. There are people, but it's just the skills don't match up. Uh, and so my team at uh, SI, we, we looked at this problem. We realized that we can't do this ourselves. Uh, we, we, we need a couple of things. First, we, we know that the manufacturing industry is evolving really, really quickly. Two things are happening. We need data scientists. And Sachin, I understand you're a data science guy. So could you send a couple of your data scientists to help upskill a bunch of uh, people? But the challenge for you is that your data scientists have done a lot of work in finance, but can you think about how to do that? Anthony, well, I've heard that a lot of things that's happening, the internet of things, a 3D printing is gonna change manufacturing. We call it additive manufacturing. Uh, generative design and uh, lots of software and even agile. Do you guys have stuff uh, that you can bring to the table? Great. Set the scene. But many, many problems there. Kevin, thank you. Anthony and Sachin, dive in. How do we solve this problem of building an ecosystem for a traditional education player? To solve this problem of X hundred thousand jobs in Singapore, the mismatch of jobs and skills, where do we start? It's such a complicated problem. So I think from my perspective, and Anthony, please jump in, right? So I think from 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 a data perspective, right, rescaling, as Dr. Kevin has also mentioned about data science. And I think we, one way is looking as how quickly we can, we can start putting some kind of programs online where people can, on their own pace, can start uh, looking into and educating themselves on, on data science, right? See, see, uh, whether the data is coming from financial institute or manufacturing or pharma, right? The way of appreciating data or understanding data, if you have that kind of skill set, industry will not, not matter, right? So, so domain knowledge 
can be added advantage but i i would suggest i i would think that you know bringing different platforms who are offering different types of data relevant courses can come into one umbrella one ecosystem and then people can log in and based on their level of understanding their level of proficiency they can they can pick up the right level of course and they can they can reskill or educate them themselves so that that is my point anthony you want to add something yeah look this is an interesting one for my sins i i used to work at news corp and i think one of the few things that i remember from my days there was one of the senior chaps told me content is king and it absolutely is content is king so i would bring that position to this as well being able to ensure that you could rapidly create a content base of i wouldn't even say high quality to start an initial base of content that you can refine over time would be key be able to give the diversity across that and that's really this competitive piece and for the there was a question before that said uh, which was asking a little bit more some, about some examples around ecosystem collaboration. This really is it. I, I have the ability to go and pull content from a really wide, diverse range of educators that effectively are competitors in the market space and be able to expose that to this group of several hundred thousand people who are needing to be reskilled. So, so content absolutely is king. The other point that I bring in here is I many, many years ago, I actually started an education company around cloud um, with a couple of other founders called Cloud Academy, because the only education, the only information that was in the space around cloud was being created by the laggards that weren't really even in the cloud space, but wanting to try and market their way into the cloud space. And so we start up a, a business to actually build that. And what was key there, again, was being able to collaborate not only with other competitors in the content space, but also going back to traditional bricks and mortar education groups and offering content there as well. So as well in that collaboration space is finding the right um, distribution venues to actually deliver that content. Yes, mobile and online is key, absolutely is critical. But what about being able to provide that in a fixed fixed environment setting, being able to have the, the teaming and the team education and collaboration, which is something that sometimes is hard to get online. So I think there's two parts. A, look at how you can build the content quickly, look at how you can refine the content and look at the different methods for actually delivering the content online, big screen, small screen, physical face-to-face, -face, virtual teaming, looking at how you can do that in a very rapid way. And again, it comes back to the same point of does it scale and does it scale fast? You know, if I've got 100 or 200,000 people who are out of work or about to be out of work, how do I ensure that I can get them learning quickly? I, I think this is actually a really topical discussion for most organizations or most countries around the world today, irrespective of whatever industry you're in. All right. Thanks, guys. Okay, we have another problem. I just, it just hit me, right? Uh, it's great. We're going to focus on skills. But how are we going to get a whole bunch of 30, 40, 50, 60 year olds to, to reskill and, and change industry or even learn new skills? Uh, I know my brain hurts whenever I try to learn something new. I try to learn artificial intelligence and my goodness, this is like the, one of the most tough things to learn. Uh, what do we do? I, I like to have some thoughts. I, I have some thoughts, but I like to know what you guys do in, in, in the real world. I, I live in the ivory tower. Hey, why don't I start there first, Sachin, because you, you got off first, then you can have a breather this time around and I'll pass back to you. Look, one thing I find is really key in this space, and I'll draw again on, on Amazon Web Services days on this, is bringing a, a set of key subject matter experts in that space that people want to listen to. So from our experience, um, there was a great book that came out in 2000 and 
2010, 2011 called The Lean Startup. Many people here would have read it by a chap by the name of Eric Reese. We liked it so much and we were innovating in this space that we simply went and bought, I think the marketing team bought 400 copies of this book. So we could leave it as a leave behind to prove, you know, we're coming in here to talk about the future. Have a look at this book and read it. And from the Lean Lean Startup became the Lean Enterprise Movement. And so something that I hold very dear today is how do I get people in a room who could actually entice people to come and put their bum on a seat. So if I think about how do I get 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds in a room, how do I get critical people who are imperative to their industry or to the industry that they're going into to come and talk outside of the content set itself? How do I actually stimulate that interest by bringing key subject matter experts to the table? Sachin, over to you, mate. Yeah. Thanks, Henry. So one thing which, which when it comes to learning or sharing some information, right? So in our area, we do a lot of storytelling, right? We, we, we solve col- uh, complex problems and we try to connect the dots and we do a storytelling. For the, the heavy topics like artificial intelligence, data science and all those things, if we are able to, to create a content uh, by more of a storytelling viewpoint, which is easy to understand, create the interest, trying to match the content with the real scenarios, I have seen people n- not losing the interest and even even people coming from a different industry would like to explore more. So so that is that is data storytelling and the, the, the content revolving around stories and real case studies and tying up should gel well, yeah. I'm going to run an idea by you guys. Thanks for that. So one of the things that we're thinking about at SIM about this kind of problem is to, first of all, recognize prior experience. And help help these learners, if I may, uh, figure out that their prior experience, their prior skills are applicable to the new job. So maybe not 100%, but maybe about 70, 80%. So soft skills, certain technical skills. So if, say, for example, or let's let's take an easy one, the aviation industry, right? You've been flying at a... You're, you're in the, the aviation industry is essentially a service industry. And it, I mean, good service is good service. And that's translatable to any other service industry. You, you take that experience. What you really need to reskill is just to reskill that that particular industry context. You're you're going from flying to I don't know a restaurant or entertainment or something like that, or hotel or something like that. That that's one. The other thing that we we think is right quite interesting is also to to work with employers themselves to analyze the jobs that, that you need, and and also to do what we call the adjacency. So I may I may be very good at skill A B C. The point about reskilling is to reskill you to to A prime or or A plus B, you know, just just change by a little bit as opposed to a big, a complete uh, turnaround, right? So, so uh, have you guys done this kind of work? Uh, are you open to helping us understand the kinds of skills needed for for the new jobs of the future? So from my point of view, I'd say most important component of that is the midterm position of actually getting those people who are being educated to re-educate as well. Right. If I think about a finance a statistician who is learning about artificial intelligence and they're they're learning artificial intelligence or machine learning, let's say for the first time, the ability to over a period of time to very quickly grab those those communicators and for those communicators to actually impart their knowledge on the learning to help accelerate learning even even quicker. So that's not a short term fix in that space, but I think that there's a missed opportunity if you don't actually capture those individuals to ensure that they can train both their own type quicker, but then also potentially bring a diversity to that same uh, point of education that they're, they're, they've currently run through. 
that's a really good point, right? If, you have, if you've done mathematics or done statistics, you can do artificial intelligence. Fantastic. Chaps, well done. We made you sweat there a little bit. The purpose of that exercise was not to solve the problem of Uncle Yu, but to see how systems thinkers think. So hopefully that was a, an interesting insight into the kind of mindsets and the questions that people are asking. It was really interesting just observing and hearing some of the language as well, like identifying effectively influences within the market is how key that is. You know, and talking about understanding the customer as well and the journey that they go through and the rapid validation as well. Before we um, wrap up on the, the key summaries here and talk about how you can get the PDF as well, if you want the PDF from this session, I guess one of the questions is, is that we talked a bit about structure as well. I'd like to ask you all thoughts on this because this is you know, now down to the organizational aspect and mechanics of building ecosystems. It's all very well building an ecosystem, but you know, we need to change aspects such as, for example, how do we POC this project? You know, normally we do POCs and they may take months. And you're talking about rapid. How do we build that in with the current structure? So thoughts on that. I mean, what works? I mean, how do you get people thinking like Anthony says in the startup way? You know, when you have, you're working with startups who want answers like this and you're a large corporate, how do you make that match? What needs to change? What needs to give? Do you go in with an attitude of, right, we need to change how we do POCs or do you need to change the metrics? What works here? He wants to jump in. I want to actually ask Sachin that because he's muted because I imagine this is a challenge for a bank because I know I work a lot with fintech startups. It's all very well talking about ecosystems, but we're a startup. We don't have three months to wait for a decision from ABC Bank. How do you deal with that? Yeah, so basically, I think this, this, this whole thing has been very well recognized by, by the bank. And um, now every bank is focused on innovation lab, right? So if you look at all the banks, they have their dedicated innovation labs where the people who are working in that is either coming from startups or are or having a very agile and a very rapid um, development kind of uh, uh, mindset. And there is a whole whole kind of focus to to, to do, deal with this kind of thing. So I, I, I think there has been recognition on this and especially in banks, uh, a uh, lot of focus has been done and there is a complete, just like we were talking about having a separate entity altogether, right? We do have separate entity which are working on quick POCs, quick turnaround times, quick solving on use cases by by engaging innovation labs. Yeah. It comes down to the people. This is the real challenge, right? Graham, I'll give an answer to it. It's slightly different though to where you're positioning the question, but it's around proof of concepts. Um, I have something that that's going on at the moment. I won't go into a huge amount of detail, but let's say that there's a very large competitor of ours that we compete with in one area of our business, but potentially not in another area of our business. And we we see the value in being able to go to market together. I, I'd mentioned before the, the key value of ecosystem partnerships, companies that are doing delivery on our behalf in a certain region. One way that we can get around some of the challenges that come with two large organizations that fundamentally compete to understand how they can work together is through a proof of concept through a third party. So being able to bring together a consulting company that has skills in both of those two companies to deliver a project for a significant name in region, be able to deliver projects. 
is something that's really critical to us. So that proof of concept is something that we do all the time. I'm doing right now as well in one space. I know and trust people within that organization that I've worked with before. We know that we can work together and we can show senior leadership that there's the ability for higher value for end customer by both those companies coming together. It's not that you're doing it under the radar. You're effectively though doing it through a proxy and that proxy is able to show the value and to be able to show patterns over time that, that really then justifies why that ecosystem partnership should exist potentially at a global level. Very interesting. That's the first time I've heard that in practice. And I've, I guess you've really comes down to the beginning where we asked about the challenge was trust. So you, you're finding a mutual trusted party who also knows how to interface with both parties, right? Absolutely, 100%. They, they know how to work those two companies internally. They know how to navigate them. They've already formed trust and they're an expert in both, both technologies uh, and they can take that to market. It, it's better together in, in so many ways. Uh, this is by no means the first time I, I could count on, on both hands the amount of times in the last 10 years that we've done this to prove a point or potentially to disprove a point to show that it doesn't work. I can tell you there's a lot of failures there as well, but the successes actually drive far quicker results. That is fantastic advice. A great takeaway as well. So if anybody's stuck thinking about how do I actually get this started, maybe the starting point is to go to a trusted third party and have that conversation. Great. Folks, we are, let, let's um, talk about how you can get the PDF from today. If you want to get the notes, let's get the slides up. We've got a few points. We've done the Q&A. Let's jump forward a couple of slides. So next steps, I'll tell you how you can get the PDA from today. Um, three action points in summary. Firstly, make contact with the panelists. I'm sure that they would like to hear from you. So if we can flash up the details. Yeah, tell them that you love the webinar, by the way, before you contact them so they know. So all the details here, um, they won't stick around for long. So um, if you want to get all their details, it will be in the PDF, which is coming up next. If you want to get hold of the PDF, then here is how you can get that PDF. If you email Alice at this address here, so we'll leave that for a few seconds. And we'll put the details in the chat box as well. If you want to contact Alice, I'm sure she'll be happy. Tell her, give me the PDF, but maybe in a much more polite way. She's all right, Alice. She's nice. No puns. So if you can contact Alice, that'd be great. Um, she will give you a copy of the PDF. It's got all the contact details in there of, um, well, the LinkedIn details, I should say, of the panelists today. I'm sure they'll be happy to talk further. And if you're interested in collaborating with them as well, they are the interfaces for their respective organizations. So it's a great way to start. And this is how you can grab yourself a seat. Don't miss out for number five coming up. There you go, folks. There is the magical QR code. You know what to do. Just grab your phone like this and scan that baby, and that will give you a priority access before. Jump the queue to number five. So go and grab yourself a seat at number five coming up, the fifth one in the Dash Plus series. If you've joined us for any of these uh series these you see that we're working through the dash plus series i think number five is going to be h hyper growth is that right dr kevin i think he agrees he's on mute i'll let i'll just that's a nod fantastic people thank you very much for joining us today we hope you've had a good time and we hope you've enjoyed the webinar with us it was a good session 
Thank you so much to our panelists. Sachin, thank you very much for joining us. Anthony, fantastic to have you here. Dr. Kevin, yeah, great to have your insights as well. We're looking forward to more on part five. Thank you, everybody. We hope you have a wonderful afternoon. Get yourself a copy of the PDF, email Alice, and we shall see you next time. Have a good one, folks. Take care. You have been listening to The Future of Work with me, Graham Brown. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and a rating on your favorite episode. We'll be back with a brand new episode in two weeks. Thank you.